You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. That last song we sang, Waymaker, I love that worship song. And there's a line in there that we repeat over and over again, that is who you are. That is who you are. And really, that's what this I Am teaching series is all about. This is our Lent teaching series. These 40 days leading up to Easter is really looking at Jesus and who he says he is. And we're going to learn... Uh, learn who, who Jesus is. It's Jesus on Jesus, right? It's his own statements, these seven I am statements. And this is a great teaching series for you, especially if you're newer to church or to faith, you're asking questions. This is the perfect time to uh, be jumping in and exploring things of faith because you're going to hear about who Jesus is. But I would even encourage you, this is a perfect teaching series for you if you've been in church your entire life to remember who it is that is suffering and dying on the cross, who it is that rose from the grave on Easter Sunday. Sometimes we can become so familiar with someone that we, we almost take for granted or we forget who they really are. I mentioned earlier in service, I uh, just got back from a trip to Alaska. I actually grew up in Alaska, and if you've ever been to Alaska, you know it's a beautiful place. Whenever I meet someone and they find out where I grew up, they always say something like, I've always wanted to go to Alaska, right? The mountains are beautiful. It's very, very beautiful. But there's some harsh things about Alaska as well. The morning that we were uh, packing up uh, to get on the plane uh, to fly home, it was negative four degrees. And my, I'm like trying to pick all the like, you know, the kids, we had three car seats in the rental car and I'm like trying to, you know, scrape the like kid snacks out of the, the floor and my fingers are frozen. I'm like, why did I not wear my gloves? And, you know, it, it's difficult, you know, the, the cold is difficult, but one of the things that's also difficult is the darkness. It's the darkness uh, because it's so far north. Uh, winter solstice was Wednesday, December 21st of uh, 2022. In Boise, Idaho, we got almost nine hours of sunlight on winter solstice, eight hours and 56 minutes. In Fairbanks, Alaska, where I grew up, they only get three hours and 41 minutes of sunlight. Here's a photo from University of Alaska Fairbanks. That's how high the sun gets in my hometown on winter solstice. And it barely peaks above the horizon before it sets. You, you wake up, you go to work, you go to school, it's dark. You get off work, you get off school, it's already dark. And the hours in between on either end, you feel like you're living in this kind of perpetual twilight. And uh, there's two serious health effects that uh, impact people who live in these, uh, these places where there's severe light deprivation. One is vitamin D deficiency. Some of you are aware that when you're in the sun, it triggers, you know, 
processes in your body so that you actually produce vitamin D. Vitamin D is an important, uh, it, it's, it's important for bone health, strong immune system. I had to look this stuff up. Like, why do we need vitamin D this week? It helps, uh, it, it, it helps uh, your skin stay healthy. And so if you're vitamin D deficient, it can actually trigger certain uh, symptoms from skin diseases. And it also increases, uh, vitamin D deficiency increases your risk of things like dementia and Alzheimer's. That's the physical effects of light deprivation, but there's also mental effects, mental health effects. Uh, there's this uh, disorder in which regulates your sleep. And so you can see that it's this afternoon and get some sunlight because the reality is even if you don't live somewhere extreme like Fairbanks, Alaska, which is less than 140 miles from the Arctic Circle, even in places like Boise, when it's been a long winter and it's just cloudy, right? When we get an inversion and you're just staying inside or maybe you're working a lot and you're just not able, you don't have a window in your office or that sort of thing. Or maybe you've lived in some of those other places in the Pacific Northwest, like Seattle or Portland and it's raining most of the year and, and it's just dark. We've all probably felt the effects of light deprivation. The reality is there's a more severe kind of light de deprivation that we experience. It's what I'm calling a kind of spiritual light deprivation, where sin and suffering surround us. And it feels like everything that you hear about in conversations with people and also everything that you see on the news or on social media is just darkness. And it fills you with this kind of cynical, or hopeless perspective on the world out there. But also, it's not just out there, is it? Sin and suffering are in here, in the human soul. And you can, you can live in this kind of spiritual light deprivation long enough that it feels like your soul is in a never-ending winter solstice. And it's in the midst of our desperate human condition that Jesus utters the second I am statement from John chapter eight. We'll be in John eight most of the time today. If you wanna turn there, in John eight twelve, Jesus says these words. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That word light in Greek is phos. It's where we get the word photon or photography from. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of light, but oftentimes we think of light bulbs, right? Light switches. We think of, really, in our modern age, artificial light sources that derive their light from electricity. You might think of the TV screen or your, your phone screen or a flashlight, but the reality is that's certainly beyond what Jesus has in mind when he uttered these words 2,000 years ago. We have to keep that in mind, that Jesus is not referring to a light bulb. He's talking about natural light sources. And really, there's two main natural light sources that occur in nature that probably people would have thought of. The first one is fire, and the next one is the sun. So think about fire for a moment. Maybe you've had this experience where you've been camping and it's like a really dark night. You're away from civilization. You don't have the light pollution from a city nearby. And it's just a lot more dark than you're used to, right? And in those moments, maybe you've had the experience of being around a campfire and seeing just how significant the light that emits from that fire 
is. When Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 8, we know that he spoke them in the court of women, which is the most populated court in the temple in Jerusalem. And he likely spoke these words, if you read the preceding chapter in John 7, uh, following the feast of tabernacles, or some translations call it the Feast of Booths. What the Feast of Tabernacles was is it's a Jewish feast every single year, a week-long feast that commemorates God freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and really the 40 years that God provided for them in the wilderness. And the reason why they would set up tabernacles or tents is because during that 40-year period, they didn't live in a building. What did they live in? They lived in tents, and that's why it's called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Tabernacles, and it takes place around the fall every single year, and it really is a way of thanking God for providing through the harvest, but also recognizing God's provision through that tent period, through the tabernacle period. Now, what's interesting about this is in the court of women, there would, there would have been these four giant torches, like gallons and gallons of oil to burn in these giant torches that every single year during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these torches so that the party could go on the entire night, right? People would come out and they would celebrate and they would party all night, but there were these giant flames that would illuminate this court in in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a fitting metaphor, it's a fitting symbol, because it reminded the people of how God led them through those 40 years in the wilderness. If you remember, God not only freed the Israelites through these 10 plagues, these 10 miracles of judgment on Egypt, but he also went with them through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of what during the night? A pillar of fire. In Exodus 13, 21 and 22, we see this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them what? To give them light. That's why it changed from cloud to fire, so that it would light their way, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And it's actually when Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his army back to recapture the Israelites to attempt to make them slaves again, it's that pillar of fire that stands in between Pharaoh and his army protecting the nation of Israel. And so this fire of God is what guides them and what protects them. But it did not depart even after God made this covenant at Mount Sinai and they build the tabernacle. It's actually God's presence was there in the same way at the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 9, 16 and 17. This is in reference to the tabernacle, the place of worship, really a forerunner to the temple. So it was always the cloud covered it, the tabernacle, by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent and after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Imagine that that there's this, this, this presence of God, this glory of God that is resting and filling on the tabernacle. And then at night, it's, it's glowing. It's this light radiating from the place of worship. And if that moves, if God's presence moves, guess what the people do? Time to pack up. 
It's time to go. And they follow God's presence. Here's the point for you and me. Follow the fire. Follow the, can you say that with me? Follow the fire. If it, think about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, perhaps saying these words, I'm the fire of God. Meant to light your path and illuminate your way, hearkening back to the pillar of fire, to the glory of God that rested over the tabernacle. What does it mean to follow the fire? It means first that we believe Jesus we believe his truth. We believe his teachings. Maybe you're familiar with this, this Bible verse, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a what? It's a light to my path. Fittingly, John begins the gospel of John with this prologue in John chapter one, calling Jesus, not only the light of the world, but the word who became flesh. He's the word that lights our path, that guides us through life. And we've got to believe the teachings of Jesus. We've got to believe he is who he said he was. What else does it mean to follow the fire? It means that you leave that old life of slavery behind. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were following God out of slavery and into freedom. Yes, they were following him into the unknown, into uncertainty, into the wilderness, but they had to remember what they were leaving behind, slavery in Egypt. Just like that, you and I, before we've been freed uh, by, by Christ in the gospel, we were slaves to sin and death. And to follow the fire means that we leave that old life behind. We no longer live in slavery to sin, and we say yes to Jesus. What does it mean to follow the fire? It means we leave that behind, but it means we also go where God guides us. We go where he leads us. Even if where God leads us doesn't seem comfortable, doesn't seem easy, it might seem difficult at times, we go even into the wilderness that God leads us in. When, God, when that fire moves from above the tabernacle, pack your bags, it's time to go. And just like that, for those of you who have a faith in Jesus, God has sent his Holy Spirit, the fire of God, to fill you. And when that Holy Spirit tells you to go, to walk in the good works which Christ Jesus prepared in advance that you would walk in, it's time to go. It's time to talk to that person, to share the gospel with that person. It's time to serve, it's time to help, it's time to give. When God says go, it's time to go. That's what it means to follow the fire. I wanna give you three prayer prompts today, okay? Three prayer prompts. It's the season of Lent, it's a time of fasting, it's also a time of deep prayer. And these aren't three things that uh, are written in scripture that you need to do. These are just three practices I think might help you in this season, okay? The first one, the first prayer prompt goes along with this metaphor of fire. And that's this week sometime, I would encourage you to get a candle. Maybe you have a candle. It doesn't have to be a scented candle. It could be. It could be a scented candle. Get in a dark room, maybe at nighttime, for me, after the kids go to bed, right? <laughs> when there's quiet in the house and light that candle and remember that Jesus is the fire of God. And that fire is meant to purify our lives. And as you sit in a dark room where that small flickering flame is the only thing that is illuminating the room, would that be a moment of contemplative prayer where you actually ask God and invite God, show me if there's any unconfessed, unrepented, hidden sin in my life? And would you allow God to shine his light into your heart? 
Would you spend that time in just deep, prayerful confession and repentance and just ask God the question, how have I not been following the light of the world? How have I been walking in darkness and allow the purifying fire of God to forgive you and cleanse you in those moments? So the first prayer prompt for you to try out this week is light a candle and get in a dark room and just spend a few moments in prayer. Again, you don't have to pray with a candle. Like This is not like in scripture necessarily. I'm just telling you, I've done this practice at times and there's something significant when you're in a dark room thinking about the darkness that is still in your own life and maybe even the darkness in the world and you use that as a moment of intercessory prayer for the world. One other significant historical event took place on the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was actually when Solomon completed the temple. King Solomon completed the temple. It was this beautiful architectural feat covered in gold and bronze and all the finest materials were sourced in the ancient world from all of King Solomon's political connections, and he actually dedicated the temple during the Feast of tabernacles. In 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 and 2, it says this, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is like the cutting the red tape of the temple, right? The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And I don't know if Solomon was ready for this, okay? Like, he's got the sacrifices, you know, for the dedication of the temple already. He probably has a torch already lit so that, you know, when he says amen, he's going to, you know, he's going to have the priests light the, the sacrifices themselves. But before they have a chance, the heavens open and the fire of God rains down. You can't always plan when the fire of God is going to fall. And the fire of God falls and consumes, and it says that the glory of the Lord so filled. You remember the, the tabernacle, the forerunner to the temple? God's presence was filling it like a fire here in the temple. As a sign of God's approval, God's presence fills the temple. So much so that the priests can't even do their job. We're supposed to be in there ministering. We can't even go in because God's glory, this is called the Shekinah glory. Can you say that word Shekinah? The Shekinah glory of God. My daughter, my oldest daughter, was singing this uh, Sunday school song. Maybe you've heard it. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. You heard that song before? She was singing that song, and I'm going to be honest, annoyingly on repeat. <laughs> on, our road, you know, on our road trip, she's like, right. And I'm like, it's a good thing that you're singing that. But, And she was singing it, and she was singing it, and she was singing it. And then she turned to me at one moment. Because she's saying, glory, glory. And she's like, Dad, what's glory? And I'm a pastor at a church. And I'm like, how do I explain the glory of God to a five-year-old? Sometimes we can become so familiar with these Bible words or sometimes these Christian words. Glory, hallelujah, right? What does that even mean? What does that mean? We become so familiar, we use these words time and time again that we forget almost the meaning behind them. Uh, the Greek word for glory is doxa. It's where we get the word doxology from. And here's just some of the things that doxa, that glory can mean. Splendor, brightness, magnificence, majesty, or excellence. And if you were to, in a physical sense, define what glory is, it's light, 
It's light. It's radiating. In fact, when, when scripture refers to God's glory, it's actually a visible manifestation of his goodness. It's something that you can see. It's not just this intangible uh, theological idea. In Luke 2, the angels appear to the shepherds. This is in the nativity story. And it says that the glory of God shone around them. How do you know that those are angels and those aren't just people claiming to be angels? That there's actually this visible manifestation that those beings have been in God's presence and they are manifesting his glory and his goodness wherever they go. Not only is glory something that radiates out of God simply because of his essence, his substance, what he's made of, how holy and how righteous he is. God's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Where God goes, his glory shines forth. It's this light. It's also something that we can do. We can give God the glory, glory, right? We can glorify God. And that's what the angels do in Luke 2.14. Not only are they shining God's glory, they sing this song, glory to God in the highest. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, it's not that we give God anything more of what he already is. Does that make sense? Like if God is like the source of, of glory, it's like shining a flashlight on the sun. You're not making the sun any brighter through that. What it's doing though to glorify God is to rightly acknowledge where that glory belongs. It's to accurately understand, and the angels understand this, the glory that they are shining is not their own glory, it's the glory of God. And they say glory to God in the highest. Which is why this second metaphor for light, I think is so helpful for us. It's not just fire, but it's the sun. I wanna show you a picture of the sun. Recent uh, technology has allowed us to have some very high definition uh, photographs and imaging of the sun. This is from the European uh, Space Agency. And you can, like, that's the sun, okay? And that's this uh, solar orbiter, which was sent to the sun to get measurements and, and take photos. And here's the thing about the sun. Now, I graduated from high school, and I'm just going to tell you, I still don't really understand why the sun shines, right? I mean, think about that. It's something we kind of take for granted. But the sun is not on fire. Because if you were to have a fire, think about it. Some of you are like, wait, it's not on fire? Think about this. In order for a fire, you need three ingredients. You need heat, you need fuel, and you need oxygen. There's no oxygen in space. What's happening? Apparently, I had to look it up this week on NASA's website. So according to NASA, it's just an ongoing series of nuclear fusion. Think of nuclear explosions in the center of this giant ball of gas out there in space that leads the core of the sun to have a temperature of about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And it's our proximity on the planet Earth to the sun that is one of the unique ingredients needed for life on Earth to be possible. I think of that line, in him was life. Look at John 1. This idea that Jesus is the light of the world is, is not only this saying in John 8, it's actually all throughout the gospel of John. You might say it's one of John's main points in writing this gospel. In John 1, 3 through 4, all things were made through him. Everyone say all things. 
The Son is all things made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and uh, life was the light of men. That Think about like our need for the sun. If, imagine if the sun went dark tomorrow, went out tomorrow. It's a matter of moments before life on earth ceases to exist. That's why, that's why when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world, we need to recognize our own place in the universe. That he's not the light of the world in the fact of this little scented, you know, honey crisp apple candle. He's not this tiny flame light of the world. He's more light of the world like the sun is. We are utterly dependent on the heat and the light for our lives. The sun is out of our control. It's not something you can hold in your hand. Think about how large the sun is in comparison to the earth. The, the sun, here's another picture from the European Space Agency. Do uh, you see that? Does anyone see that tiny blue speck up there in the top right corner? You see that tiny blue speck? That's how, that's for perspective, how large the earth is in comparison to the sun. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles, which is about 109 times the size of planet Earth. And planet Earth's not too shabby, all right? It's like if you go and look at, a, if you're up on a high mountain, you're looking across, you're like, whoa, the Earth is huge. Just think about the sun, right? This is out of our control. God is not a small flickering flame almost dying out. He is this 109 times the size of our planet. He is this ongoing nuclear fusion. He is this 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. He's the light of the world. In him was life, and life was the light of man. And uh, for Jesus to be the light of the world... It's this otherworldly kind of light that comes into our world. I think of John 1, 9, where it says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is not just an ordinary man. He's not just a man who lived a righteous enough life that he attained the position of the light of the world. When Jesus claims this, this title, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I created the entire universe. I am the very glory of God. The holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I have entered into this world. He's no mere human. He is the light of life itself. So here's the point for you and me. Stay in the sun. Can you say that with me? Stay in the sun. Stay in the sun. Here's the thing about the sun. It's always up there. We're not always in it. Talk about light deprivation a little bit earlier. And, uh, and some of you, you know, are feeling like, man, I need to get outside. The reality is, we still need God's empowering presence if we're going to make it through this dark world. We need to spend time sitting under the empowering presence of Jesus Christ, spending time in his words, spending time in prayer. I mean, imagine how silly that would be if we were like, thank you, you know, thinking of the actual sun. Thank you, sun, for, you know, photosynthesis and for heating up our world. But you know what? 
we've got it from here because now we have flashlights on our phones. Don't worry, I've got it. Look, I can turn this on with the click of a button. Don't worry, we don't need the sun to shine anymore. I think about how often we kind of act like that functionally in our lives, that we thank God for shining light into our life and then we go on living our lives indoors, apart from the empowering presence. So here's our second prayer prompt, okay? This week, maybe even today, I would encourage you, if you can, especially on a sunny day, to get outside and pray in the sun. Spend some time, you can go on a walk, you can bundle up, you can you know, find a nice quiet place to sit, maybe by the river and just pray in the sun. Or if you just are truly, like you hate going outside, find a window at least. <laughs> sit next to a window <laughs> with your cocoa or whatever. But to spend some time praying in the sun. Again, this isn't like it's some scriptural practice. It's just a practice that I would encourage you. And perhaps you would even, that would be a different experience than a dark room with a candle, wouldn't it? So pray this week, sometime this week, dark room, small candle. And pray another time this week, just letting the rays of the sun shine on your skin. Maybe you close your eyes and you actually just spend that time, maybe, maybe not even saying much to God, but just sitting, and as you feel the rays of the actual sun shine on your skin, you think about God's glory, his Shekinah glory, and you ask God to fill you with his presence, to fill you with his presence, to shine his light in your life, and you remember the goodness of God. Will you do that this week? Okay. Prayer problem number two, pray in the sun at some point this week. Now, this claim of Jesus to be the light of the world, it's massive, okay? This isn't just some, you know, some interesting statement that he makes. It's, it's a massive statement. And even for me to you know, say that when Jesus is saying this, he, he's claiming to be the creator God. He's claiming to be the Shekinah glory of God taking on flesh in our world. For some of you, especially if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it might be difficult for you to believe that. And I just want to let you know you're not alone. In fact, the audience that Jesus spoke these words to, namely the Pharisees, a group of very religious Jews, they did not believe him. In John chapter 8, look at their response. John 8, 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're saying you're lying to us. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I, come, where I come from or where I am going. So what Jesus answers them is he answers them in an interesting way. He speaks to his origin and his destiny, okay? His origin and his destiny. His origin is where I come from. Jesus knows that before the heavens and the earth were created. He existed as the eternal Son at the right hand of the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, pre-existing the creation of our universe. He actually gets to this point a little later in John chapter 8. In John 8, 58, they're talking about Abraham, and Jesus is really going to offend the Pharisees when he says, your father's not Abraham, your son's of the devil, okay? So that's... That's pretty harsh, okay? So he says that, and they're like, well, how do you know Abraham? You're talking like you know that guy. And Jesus is like, well, okay, let me, let, me, let me drop this truth bomb on you. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, which whenever you read truly, truly, 
that's like, what I'm telling you is absolutely true. That's what he's, he's about to make a tr- statement of absolute truth. Before Abraham was, everyone read those next two words, I am. This isn't one of our I am statements, but it might as well be. Because Jesus is claiming to be the I am. To be the pre-existent son of God. For in him, Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And when Jesus said these words in John 8.58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he's riled up the people a little bit because he's called them sons of the devil. But now... After he says this, the very next statement is they pick up stones and they're about to kill him. We joke around about, you know, you have a bad sermon, you might get some negative comments on, on social media or YouTube. And we do. And we delete those things, right? We don't want that. <laughs> or we, we joke around, you know, in the, old, in the olden days, I guess they used to do this. That you see a bad show and you pick up rotten, fr- you bring rotten fruit with you. Is that what people would do? they throw it. This is not just like, ah, oh, that was an uncomfortable statement. Either Jesus is telling the truth before Abraham was, I am. I am the light of the world. Either he's telling the truth or it's absolute blasphemy. And they pick up stones and they're about to kill him. But because this, this time is not right, the plan of God is not right. He's going to die on a cross. He's not going to be stoned to death. They're prevented from doing so. This is, this is powerful testimony about the origin of Jesus. He's no mere man. And in fact, a little bit later, uh, the disciples, three of them, Peter, James, and John, the same John who wrote the gospel of John that we're reading, had an opportunity to see a glimpse. Because when Jesus is saying this, I'm the light of God, the sun, do you know how hot the sun is? 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And they're like, what's Fahrenheit? You know, because they don't, they don't quite grasp it. He still looks like an ordinary guy. Can you see the disconnect? How are we meant to believe that you're the pre-existent light of God who, came, who entered into our world and by you and through you and for you, all things were created? How are you supposed to? You look like a normal guy. Well, there is a moment that John, the apostle John got to witness where Jesus goes up on the mountain before the Passion Week, before his final week. And he, it's called the Transfiguration where the, his true glory, begin, they get a glimpse of it. And, and, and God's, you know, the Father, his presence, and he, he says, this is my son, listen to him. And it's just, they see his glory for just a moment. But that's his origin, is where he came from. He came from God. And then Jesus says, where I am going. This will, you want to know if my witness, if my testimony is true? It's not only, you know, that I, that I, that I, I can't, I've been here a long time, a lot longer than all this. It's also his destiny, where he's going. What's he referring to when he says where I'm going? A little bit later, again, a few verses down in John 8, 21, he says this. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And what Jesus is referencing here is he's referencing the cross, the fact that he would die for the sins of the world on the cross. His destiny, it's actually the very reason why the light of the world entered into our world, was not just so that Jesus could teach us some lessons on how to live our lives or even to relate to us and become like us in every way except for for sin, he never sinned, but it's actually to atone for our sins, to die in our place on the cross. And I think about that moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross and for three hours, the three hours preceding his final breath, there was utter darkness. 
over the land. The light of the world not only entered into our dark world, but he took our darkness, he took our sin in his body on the tree as he hung there and suffered and died, faced the wrath of God himself. And that's why Jesus could make such a bold statement. Remember that these, the same audience that he's speaking to, he says, you will die in your sin. A, a few verses later, he actually says, well, you'll either die in your sin or you'll believe that I will die for your sin. And that's the choice that Jesus leaves us with. Either his words are absolute insanity or blasphemy or he's telling the truth. And that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He's the son of God and he died for your sin and mine on the cross. And now we have an option. We have an option. You can choose to believe and put your trust in Jesus and have his death on the cross cover your sins. His blood cleanse you from all unrighteousness or we can die for our own sins. There's no other choice. The fire of God will either be the thing that God uses to purify us and cleanse us or the thing that consumes us. But three days later, just as the light was coming over the horizon on Easter morning, Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered. The light of the world conquered sin, death, and the devil once and for all. And the story doesn't end in darkness. It actually ends in light. So where Jesus is going is not just to the cross, but he's going to be raised from the grave and he's going to ascend to the Father where he sits right now. He's returned to the light. He's returned to his position, reigning on, on high. And in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, this is how Paul puts it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son or the kingdom of, of the light and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I just want to invite you today. Maybe you've been suffering from that spiritual light deprivation your entire life, where you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never experienced fellowship with God or fellowship uh, with God's family. Today can be the day that God rescues you out of darkness and into light. Leave that life of slavery to sin behind. Turn away from that. Walk in the light. Put your faith in Jesus. Pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And, and I want to challenge you. If, if that's you and you've never, uh, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and you've never been baptized, to get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm pleased to share with you that winter camp a couple weeks ago, there were six students who got baptized at winter camp. Can we celebrate that? Do we have a video? got a video so you can see some of those students. What baptism is, it's this declaration. Going under the water is leaving your old life behind. It's, it's, it's I'm going to leave slavery to sin and death behind. And being raised up to life is demonstrating that you're not raising your own life. You're not, you're not working your way into God's kingdom. You're allowing the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to raise you up into a new life with him. Five of these students, five of the six students who got baptized were from Hill City Church. God is drawing, uh, drawing our youth, drawing the next generation to himself. I just want to read you their names. Caleb, Fletcher, Brock, uh, Vidigain, Hallie, Stewart, Archer, Foster, and Joshua Chigbrow. Let's celebrate once again. So good. So good. So I wanted you, wanted you to just have that opportunity to witness uh, those students. Maybe that's you, though. If you've, if you've never been rescued by God out of darkness and into light, he is calling you. He is leading you. He is drawing you to himself. Do not stay in the darkness. 
I know it can be scary. Do you ever have that moment when you're a kid and you hit, you've hit the snooze button enough times and there's a nice dark room and it's nice and cozy? We can, we can become so cozy in our sin, can't we? We can become so accustomed to our sin and familiar with our sin. And uh, maybe a parent came in and they flipped on that light switch. It could be a little jarring. And uh, maybe they're saying, rise and shine, you know, and you're like, ah, not again. And I know it can be scary to allow God to shine light, but, but let me tell you, man, God is drawing you out of darkness into his light. There's so much more than the darkness that we experience in this world. Stop walking around in this perpetual winter solstice of the soul. After God rescues you and brings you into his kingdom, uh, the reality is this light of the world, it also teaches us that we are meant to now be the light. Here's a third point, to shine the light. Shine the light. Can you say that with me? Shine the light. This is really the principle that Hill City Church is kind of named after. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, who is the light of the world, he actually says that we are now. When God shines his light into your life, it actually transforms you. It changes you. Some of you might remember Moses. Uh, he, he would meet with God in the tent of meeting and he would you know, be face to face with the glory of God. Remember that radiating glory of God. So much so that after he would leave from the tent of meeting, he would spend time in God's presence, right? We want to stay in the light. We want to spend time in God's presence. And after he would do that, he would go out and people would look at his face and there, it was glowing. It was the glory of God had done something to him to the point where Moses began to actually wear a face covering because it was too much. You're, like, you're spending a little too much time in God's presence. And it's this story that the Apostle Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians 3 when he talks about how our lives are meant to be. And uh, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding, so we've got to put ourselves in that position where we're beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Some translations say from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The reality is, if you have the Holy Spirit of God in your life, the goal is not to have some static, plateaued, uh, walk with God, but to have this dynamic experience where you can actually experience more and more sanctification, more and more of God's presence in your life, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and that you would actually continually be transformed from glory to glory. And that the more time that you spend following Jesus, walking by the Spirit, or being in the presence of God, the, the greater you will be able to shine God's light. And in fact, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, what Paul goes on to say, he says, don't veil your face. Because if you veil the gospel, you're actually preventing people from hearing the, and experiencing the light of the world. So take off that face covering. Shine God's Light. Here's our third prayer prompt for you. This one uh, is not actually a candle or a sun. This one is this bookmark that maybe you received. Can you, can you just hold this in the air if you received this on the way in? Anyone, did anyone get one of these? Okay, we've got some bookmarks. Uh, if you're watching online or listening online, you can always email us. We'll send you one of these bookmarks or you can sign up 
This is a, uh, a prayer initiative from a bunch of churches in the Northwest called People Are the Prize. You can actually find out more at peoplearetheprize.org. But we have enough bookmarks for everyone uh, who's a part of our church to take one. If you didn't get one, they're on the tables at the back on your way out. And uh, essentially, it's this idea that God wants us once we've, once we've been brought into God's kingdom of light, we're supposed to shine God's light specifically to people who don't know Jesus yet. And on the back of this bookmark, there are 10, uh, just 10 lines. And this is for you to put 10 names of people that you know that you will commit to praying for who don't know Jesus, that you would pray for, for your lost friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, and uh, you would pray that they would come to know Christ. And you might be wondering, well, how, how long am I committing to praying for them? Until they know Christ! <laughs> so I know this is just a piece of paper, but this is actually a pretty big commitment. Right? Maybe, you, maybe some of you have heard the story of Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist. He didn't have 10 names, he had 100 names. And he prayed for those people. He kept them in his Bible, so you can keep this bookmark in your Bible if you want. And uh, he prayed for them, and 97 of those people had come to know Christ by the time of his funeral. And the other three gave their lives to Christ at his funeral. I think that's the number, right? Three, three people had yet, you know, or six people, or however many. But it's this, this powerful testimony of commit to praying for these people. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't know if I know 10 people who don't know Christ that I would really commit to praying for. Take a bookmark anyway, and if it's three, write down three, but make it your goal to fill this bookmark. And do you know the name of your neighbor who lives next to you? Get This week, you're, you can stare as you, you bring this out, you pray for those people, and you're like, I gotta, I gotta get six more names. I gotta get seven more names. I'm gonna go meet my neighbor today. Right? And use that as an evangelistic prompt for you to actually get out there and get to know more people that you can commit to. Would you, would you do that? And I'm just going to say this to you. If you receive one of these bookmarks and you're like, I'm not going to do it, leave the bookmark here. And just be honest with that. Just have the bravery, the courage to be like, honestly, I, like, I would put my own name on this bookmark because I'm not sure I'm a Christian yet. Maybe do that. Maybe, maybe keep the bookmark, <laughs> write your own name. But, uh, but take that. That's the third prayer prompt. The reality is this is Lent, season of fasting and prayer leading up to Easter. There's no better time to start this kind of prayer initiative than now. Would you, would you pray for these people? And maybe even when we get our Easter invites, would you invite those people to Easter where they can hear the good news of the gospel and they can, uh, they can respond and God can work in their lives. As I close, let me just allow, allow me to read Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Should be familiar to you. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.